Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you all today. I'm glad you all, all, all are here. I hope that you'll join us for the cornhole tournament or at least eating free hot dogs. Either one, it doesn't bother me. I know I'm going to have a few kids running around on that field having a blast because they kind of have free reign to almost 100 yards of grass. And uh, I'm sure they're going to come back just sweaty and tired. It's going to be awesome. But I hope you'll join us for that. Um, now we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're pulling out of our series on Acts, and here's why. In a few weeks is Easter. I mean, I say a few weeks, it's more than just two. It's like five weeks away. We're going to go to, we're going to be celebrating Easter. And for, for 2,000 years, the church has been celebrating Easter. And it, this is a big deal for us. Like, I don't know how Christmas exploded on the scene, but for the early church, even though Christmas was important, Easter was the big dog of all of them. It was the Super Bowl for the church. It, it wasn't really like a Super Bowl, but you know what I mean. It's, and it's that time of year where you've probably all grown up celebrating Easter. You either had Easter eggs and candy with little bunnies, or that was a Sunday you got a brand new dress and brand new clothes, and all your family came together to church, and you had a big family meal afterwards. And, and here's the deal. Easter is supposed to be a big deal, but, but not for those reasons that I just mentioned. Easter for us is honestly, it is the linchpin of our entire faith. And what we celebrate in Easter is the most important thing about what we do as a church. It's the reason that we gather. It's the reason the church even exists. What happened on Easter is central to what we believe. And, and I, don't want to just abla- I don't want us just to blaze a trail through Easter this year. I, I want to take time for us to prepare our hearts to be ready to celebrate Easter. I want the resurrection of Jesus to be a big deal for you. I don't want it just to be tradition. I don't want it just to be a, a day with candy and, and whatever colored clothes we wear, pastels, that's the color that it is. I, I don't want it to be that. It, it's supposed to be more for us. And so I want to encourage you as, we're, as I'm taking time on Sunday mornings to get us ready for Easter, I want you to take time throughout the week. I want you to, to have a plan for the coming weeks on how you're going to spend time with God in his word looking at what the Bible says about Easter. I I want you to be preparing to worship him, to celebrate the resurrection. That's what I'm asking you to do. So don't just listen to the messages the coming weeks. I want in the coming weeks for you to pick a, either you can read through the Gospels or read through the end of the book of John. There's there's a ton of things you can do to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. But don't just blow a, a path through this holiday and wake up, eat some candy, have lunch with your family, and then move on. Make it a significant time of worship for you. This matters for us. And my goal for us in this is that there would be moments of awe at how big and strong God is. I'm praying for you that there would be moments of just amazement at the grace of Jesus and his good news. I pray there'd be moments not just of awe and worship and and amazement. I pray there'd be moments of deep hope, like hope for the things you struggle with, Hope for the darkest moments of your life, the darkest corners of your heart. I want you to get a glimpse of the hope that the resurrection give us, gives us. And I'm hoping somehow to have that all happen in this series. So we definitely need Jesus to help for that to happen. So here's what we're going to be doing for a couple weeks here in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If, if you can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, that's where we're going to be. And, and as you're turning in your Bibles, let me tell you what's kind of going on in the book of Corinthians, of 1 Corinthians. Um, this is a church that Paul started. We, uh, they're a pretty messed up church, if I'm honest with you. Of all the churches in the New Testament, 
Corinth is the messiest, the most disgusting, the most feisty church that Paul has to deal with. Like when you see some of the stuff that you're trying to understand that Paul is dealing with in this church, the things they've said to him, the things they've done to him, they basically told Paul multiple times, get out of here. We don't like you. We don't want to listen to you. Like there's a church fight about whether or not they should listen to Paul or not. And as that's happening, as all this is going on, this church has all sorts of issues. I mean, all sorts of crazy, 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 crazy issues. I'm not going to get into them because some of them are too gross to talk about this morning. But the one that he's dealing with in this chapter, which is the last of like 15 issues he's dealing with in this church, is the church actually has a group of people that they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They believe that he came back from the dead but they don't believe that they are ever going to get resurrected after they die. They think when you're dead, that's it. That's all she wrote. There is no resurrection. You might go to heaven, but you will never get a new body. There's no resurrection. So this is one of the issues Paul is dealing with in this church. And that's where we're picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's see how Paul sets this up uh, in this conversation. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 2. It says this. Now I would, rem- I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel or the good news I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and look at this in verse two, and by which you are being saved. Let me just hit pause right there. Here's what Paul wants to do. He wants to start about this issue of resurrection, and he wants to start by saying, let me remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And he he says, yeah, you believed it, I preached to you, but it's this one phrase that stood out to me right out of the bat in verse 2, which he says, and by which you are being saved. Now listen, I, I like to pick on words. That's how I study the Bible. But when I see that phrase, being saved, this is a huge thing that Paul is telling us. See, oftentimes when we talk about the gospel work of Jesus, we talk about it in two different tenses. We talk about it in the past tense. You know what? I was saved. Let me tell you the moment years ago, weeks ago, decades ago, that I got saved by placing my trust in Jesus. We talk about it in the past tense. And there's good reason for that because when God talks about saving us, Sometimes he talks about it in the past tense as if it's so sure that he's already gotten this done. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. I want you to hear all the past tense that's in this when, when he's talking about us getting saved. He says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's past, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Like you see the past tense, past tense, past tense. Here's what he's saying. When you get saved, God does all this work. He adopts us and he forgives us and he cleans us and he gives us a new heart and he gives us the Holy Spirit. He does all this stuff and it is as good as done. He's saying, I saved you. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. You were saved in the past in that moment. But it's not just that, that we talk about things in the past as it being a sure thing. Sometimes in the Bible it talks about salvation in the future tense. It's talking about what's going to happen in the future. We talk about it with a certainty that he's going to do something that we look forward to. He's going to complete it. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, future tense, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that this gives us huge hope. 
Because it's saying, in the past, God said, I'm doing this for you. You will be saved. I, I will make you new. I, it's all done. And it says, and in the future, when I come back, I'm going to finish everything that I promised to do. I started a work right here, and I'm going to finish it right here. That, that's big hope for me. Let me tell you why that's big hope for you and for me. Because when he starts something, he's promising he's going to do it all the way to the end. So in the moments when you're feeling wrapped up in sin, God's made you a promise. He's going to finish what he started. The, the moments when you feel like you don't have hope and you don't have strength, he's made a promise that he's going to finish what he started. He didn't say, you better finish what I started. He said that he was going to finish what he started. Listen, that, that is huge hope for all of us in our darkest moment. But but the thing that Paul adds here in 1 Corinthians 15 is not just you have been saved and you will be saved. He adds this thing in the present that's continuous. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, by which you are being saved right now. That phrase has this idea, not, not just that I was saved or will be, it's this ongoing continual process. He's saying you are in the process currently right now of being saved. What does that mean for us? I love this because here's what I think this means. It means that the moment I get saved in the past to the moment he finishes the salvation in the future, he's doing a work all the way in between. He's constantly over and over and over again continuously working on you and me. It's like he's, he's like an awesome artist that's got this big chunk of rock and he's saying, I've got this rock, and I know what I want it to look like. I'm going to chisel it to look like, not me, we'll say someone that's better looking than me, someone amazing. I'm going to chisel it, it's going to be perfect. I've got the rock, I know where I'm going, and all in between, you're just chiseling, 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 shaping, chiseling, removing what doesn't need to be there, smoothing out what's rough, just constantly working all the way until he's done. His promise for us is that he is constantly in the process of saving us or making our salvation practical. He's constantly fleshing it out in my life and in your life. It, it means this, that right now, God is working in you and on you, and he will always be doing it. Here's the concern for me. The concern for me is, church, sometimes I'm, I'm afraid that we're not constantly growing and being changed to look more and more like him, we stop. You know what I mean? Like You might be growing and changing the first year you get saved or a little bit afterwards, but eventually there's like this stop where you stop growing and you stop changing. And there, all of a sudden there becomes this numbness to whenever he's calling us. There's this hardness in our heart that happens when God is working on us. It's like, it's like he's not working anymore. Yeah, it was really fun 10 years ago. It was really exciting 20 years ago. But now, right now, there's this staleness, this dryness that he's trying to work, and we become numb and hard-hearted and unmovable. And there is no point in the Christian life that really should, be ha that should happen to us. There may be dryness. But we shouldn't be numb to his calling and grace. We, we shouldn't be indifferent to his commands. We shouldn't go into a spiritual coma and just coast. And as I read that we are being saved, I can't help but ask this question. And the question I ask is this. Are you still growing and being molded to look like Jesus? 
Are you still having real, living encounters with him through his word? Is he still convicting of sin and you actually respond to it? Is he still showing you his greatness and all of a sudden your heart has these moments where it feels excited about worshiping and knowing God? Do you still have those moments or do those stop? Listen, if they've stopped, if you're dry, if you're stale, if you've stopped repenting of sin, if you've stopped loving what is right and good, Jesus says he will constantly and continually keep working on us. We are in the process of being saved. And if you are not being worked on, something is wrong. And I'm going to tell you, it's not something that's wrong with him. It's something that's wrong with you and I. He said when he starts working on us, he's going to do it to the end. He said not just that we have been saved and will be saved, we are being saved. The problem is not in the Savior. The problem is in hard hearts or distracted hearts or loveless hearts or some form of Christianity we learn where we just coast. That is not the way of Jesus. And listen, it doesn't matter what age you are, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the church, beware of a spiritual coma that sets in where you stop being saved. He's not, he's not real, he's not connected to you, it's just some imaginary thing that you just show up and do on Sundays. That's not the way of Christ. And when Paul goes to talk to this church about this issue, the place he starts is with the gospel. This is the gospel I preached. This is who is at work in you right now. Whether you feel it or not, he's at work. He is in the process of saving you. And then he adds this phrase at the end of verse 2, 1 Corinthians 15. Let me put it back up there. He says, and by which you are being saved, then he throws this really big curveball there. If, I don't like the word if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What's he saying there? Here's, here's what I think is going on. He just you know, he's promised in other books that he's gonna, Jesus is going to finish the work that he started. I don't think he's saying that we lose being saved. I think he's saying this, that one of the signs of being a true follower of Jesus is that it sticks in you. Like when Jesus saves you, he says, I'm going to do this work all the way to the end. And sometimes it seems like there's people that pray some prayer or have some experience or they grow up in church or they, they're in church for a little while. And at some point, there's this drift that starts to happen. And as they drift away, eventually the drift gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually you just walk away from it all. You may say you walk away from it or you might not walk away from it. You just say, I like it, but I'm too busy. But, but the gap happens and you eventually just walk away. And Paul makes a statement here that, that I think is really challenging for us. It, it happens all over the place in the New Testament that the faith that saves is also the faith that lasts all the way to the end. Here's what that means for us. That, that should rattle some of us. If you are not in the process of being saved, if he's not real and alive to you, there's not real encounters with God and with Jesus, if you can walk away, if you can be gone away from him for weeks and months and years, the Bible asks a very hard question for you about your faith. The question it asks is, is that faith in vain? Let me put it in English words. Is that faith real or not? And the answer that the Bible gives over and over and over again 
For example, in the book of John, if you trace this theme, Jesus is constantly bumping into crowds that say they believe in him. And he goes, no, you don't. Not really. Over and over and over again, he pushes back on that. The entire book of Hebrews is about what it means for someone to have some experience but walk away from Jesus. Listen, the challenge for us is this. I can't know if you've backslidden away from Jesus or you've walked totally away, but if you don't have a faith that lasts, the reality is you probably don't have a faith that saves. Let me say that again. If you don't have a faith that lasts, the reality is you probably don't have a faith that saves. So let me give an example of that because I think we see it all the time. It's someone that grows up in church and they pray some prayer and they're well behaved while their parents have got them under control. But there's a day they leave the house and they walk away from the faith and it's not a real living vibrant faith. It's a faith they've said, you know what, I'm not so sure I care about that anymore. I don't have time for it for sure. I'm not sure I want to know Jesus and worship him and follow him, especially if it costs me whatever that fill in the blank is. Listen, they walk away from Jesus, and the scary news parents that you need to hear is you cannot sit there and say, they prayed some prayer when they're five, I know that they're saved. You don't know that they're saved. We don't. I don't know that they're not, but I don't know that they are. Because if they never come back, if they always drift and they stay away, the reality is Jesus is not some chump that lets you make believe faith in him and lets you get away with it. He sees it clearly. He's just and he's right. And there are lots of fake faiths that do not save. The faith that saves lasts all the way to the end. That's the promise that Jesus says he will do in our hearts. So the concern is when we have people that grow up in the church and they walk away, we should be deeply grieved and concerned. And they may be searching, but they might be walking away and they're in danger. I'm not telling you to guilt trip them. I'm saying don't just feel comfortable with it. Pray for God to do a work in their hearts. Something, anything. The concern is there'd be people that'd be part of the church for their whole life. They only come to church because it's tradition or duty or whatever the word is that would describe it. And they would be rubbing up against us, but in reality, they don't know and love and encounter Jesus. They love tradition. They love the experience of church, but do you love the person of the church who is the Savior, that's Jesus Christ? Listen, if that's never in our hearts, the Bible asks you a really hard question. Do you really have faith that saves? Or you just have some kind of affinity to religion? Because it's not the same. I think COVID shows us some shocking things about how easy it is for people to Stream Jesus once a week. Now I'm really messing with stuff. But totally disengaged from his bride, the Christ. I think the reality of the Christian church, there are so few people that on a regular basis will get up and spend time on their own worshiping Jesus and reading his word because we're all too busy and we're all too tired and we've got kids running around and we've got jobs and they woke me up during the night and we never, never, never Read the word. And somehow I'm supposed to give you this encouragement. No, you're okay. Jesus loves you. He, he, he does love you. But the Bible's going to challenge you. I'm just telling you, he's going to challenge you. This fake make-believe Christianity, it's not the real thing. 
real followers of Jesus. I'm not saying we don't limp. I'm not saying we don't struggle. That's not, that's not, what I'm saying is there's something that he does. It's a gracious work that he's stirring in your heart that you want him and you know him and you love him. It's grace and it's kindness. He's not saying get up and perform and read your Bible or I'm going to punch you in the head. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I gave you a new heart. And there should be something happening in you. You can't manufacture it. You need me. And I'm here to help you with that. And we've learned some form that is not the real deal. So when I read, we are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach you unless you believed in vain. Here's what I see. That Jesus is always working in your heart. And if he isn't, you might not have the real thing. Now, even as I say that, I get nervous because some of you, you do have the real thing, but you just, you've got a fragile, fragile faith. It's okay. <laughs> fragile faith is not the same as faith that walks away. If you feel like you're barely hanging on, there's like a hair, like it's a thread between you and, and you're not sure you're going to make it. That thread can still be faith. It doesn't mean your faith is always going to be rock solid and strong. It just means it's going to last. And the way your faith lasts is not you grit your teeth and make it last. The way my faith lasts and the way your faith lasts is there's a Savior that gives us faith. When we go to him, we say, I need help. I need you to help me. Wake this up in me. There's just a little spark. Just throw something, anything. So for some of you, what you you need to hear is not, hey, you're not saved. You need to hear, man, there is a Savior that will literally hold you all the way to the end. I don't know which one is you. I can't know. But I know who Jesus is. And I know that he knows the difference between real fake and faith fake. And I know that he gives grace to hold all of us to the end if we really have real trust in him. But, but anyways, Paul wants to go on here. He's not, that's just the beginning. He's saying, listen, you don't believe in the resurrection. I, listen, let me remind you of the gospel. And, and I'm hoping that right now you're not drifting away. I'm hoping right now you're going to stay true to him. I hope you did not believe in vain. Verse 3. So now he's going to remind them. Remind you of the good news. 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's what he delivered. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Here's the message. Jesus died for us, not as an example. He didn't die because he got tricked by the Romans or by the Jewish authorities. He didn't die because of a political game. He died for our sins. For you and mine rebellion. He died for us. Because we were broken and dysfunctional and rebellion against him. He chose to die. And it says, in accordance with the scriptures. That's exactly what the Bible says was going to happen in the Old Testament. They prophesied. Verse 4. Here's, here's more of this good news. Not just that he died for our sins, but that he was buried. And look at this. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Here, here's his claim. The claim that he is saying is this. The good news that I preach to you is that Jesus came and he died like he was really fully and completely dead and he was really buried and he really came back to life three days later. This is the part we're gearing up for Easter. And I want you to hear something. That last part that we get so used to, that he came back from the dead, that's the part that I want to look at just for a moment here. 
That's the part that that claim sounds insane. If you really hit a pause and think about that. Like just think about what we just said here. There was a man that was crucified. They stabbed him with a spear, punctured his heart, and blood and water came out. They buried him, and on the third day, he came back from the dead. Do you realize how insane that sounds? I need a nod or something. Does that sound outlandish to you? Okay, good. That means you understand what I'm saying here. It, it should sound out, outlandish, and, and it's so outlandish. Let me just tell you, it is so outlandish that very few people, even in the Christian world, accept this. This gets rejected more and more and more. There are so many arguments that happen in seminaries and people who are saying the Bible all over the place about, well, he couldn't have come back from the dead. What really happened here? Because there's no way that someone comes back from the dead. And I want you to know, I think that that comes from some uh, presuppositions from biases that God doesn't exist or that miracles don't happen because if God does exist, he's removed and not engaged. That's why they can't go there. They think that this is some type of ancient fiction or it's a story someone made up or it's a big con that happened where people lied or, or whatever that is happening. And here's what these guys are saying. Paul is not saying that he thinks Jesus resurrected spiritually He's saying that he believes that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. He's saying this is history. This is fact. He really came back from the dead. Because look at what he says here in the next verses. I want you to hear this, this statement here. He says, and that he appeared, oh, I'm sorry, verse 4, verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. So Peter saw him. And then to the 12, he, he came to the apostles and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And look at this phrase right here. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So he's saying, listen, he appeared to Peter, to the apostles. He appeared to 500 people at once, and they're still alive. If you want to go talk to them, I'll give you names and addresses. That's what Paul just said there. That's an outlandish claim for some type of fairy tale. He says this, verse 7. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. Apparently he's making the rounds. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He's saying, listen, he appeared to all these people, to, to Peter, the apostles, 500 people, James, again the apostles. He appeared even to me. This is, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that this is historical fact, that there are eyewitnesses that Jesus really came back from the dead. Now, now listen, you may have a couple thoughts in your head. I, I don't know if you're familiar with doubts about this. You may have just always believed it. I don't want to give you more doubts, but I do want to answer some questions that people have about this idea of resurrection because it, it really is important for us. I, I believe that the claim that Jesus came back from the dead is so outlandish. Listen, there is no other religion that has the audacity to say that their leader died and came back from the dead. I'm just, listen, the, the, the Muslims do not claim that Muhammad died and came back from the dead. Buddhists do not claim that Buddha died and came back from the dead. Like this, is, this is a unique claim in the entire world and in all religions. It's not just some fairy tale thing. He's saying, I think he came back from the dead as a matter of fact. And, and let me tell you why I believe this is historical fact. I'm going to give you a few reasons why I think this is reasonable to believe and not just, I hope that he really came back from the dead. Here's the first reason I think this is historical fact. 
There's no way that a movement in Jerusalem would have happened if the leaders could have actually produced the body of Jesus. I want you to think about this. We're not talking about decades after Jesus died. We're talking within a month after Jesus died. There's a movement in Jerusalem, a massive movement in Jerusalem. And all the Jewish leaders have to do is go to the tomb, open it up and say, there's his body and this whole thing stops. That's it. There's no way the movement gets traction, but that's, that's not what happened. That they couldn't produce the body because there was no body there. Like you can't, and the other thing that's going on here is this new group that has this movement, there's this new idea going on in their head that resurrection has happened and it will happen again. It's a resurrection-based movement. Like, where do you get that crazy idea from? You think the disciples are sitting in a room saying, man, I'm really ticked that these guys killed Jesus. I've got a great idea. It's a brilliant scam. Let's invent a thing called resurrection that nobody in their right mind would ever believe. Let's pitch that tale to them. Does that sound like the same type of guys that tuck tail and run when some guys show up to arrest Jesus to you? Doesn't that sound slightly different than the cowards we see in the garden? All of a sudden, they're like, we're going we're gonna to make up a lie and sell it for our whole lives. That doesn't make sense, you guys. That, that's not logical, at least not in my brain. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, I don't believe you see this movement happen in Jerusalem. The other thing is, he's saying there's over 500 witnesses. Listen, I don't believe that's a fake story. I think there really are 500 witnesses. That makes sense for the movement happening. It's not one witness. It's not two. It's not ten. 500 witnesses in Jerusalem, 500 people saying, we all saw him, he was there. Like this is, this is crazy. That, that makes sense if you see a movement explode in Jerusalem the way we saw in Acts, doesn't it? Like you go from 100 believers to 5,000 like that. You think Peter delivered that good of a sermon? Now let me tell you what happens. Jesus shows up and starts showing himself to people and they're all going, he's back, he's back, he's back. And then Peter preaches a sermon and then you know what happens? 5,000 people get saved. Does that make more sense to you? That makes sense. I'm just telling you, this makes logical sense to me. And I don't believe the disciples could have pulled the whole, let's get a lookalike and parade him in front of them. Like just think through this. Jesus for three years is walking around all of Israel. You need to think about the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that he healed. The thousands upon, the ten thousands of people that interacted with Jesus face to face over the three years that he was on this earth. Do you think that the disciples could pull up a lookalike in front of these people and change the entire culture of the city and the nation of Israel? You think they could pull that off with a lookalike? There's, there's no way, because someone's going to go, no, he, I was blind. That dude healed me. That's not him. Like, you can get a doppelganger as much as you want. I'm telling you, that con doesn't work. Unless he had a secret twin brother. And now we're getting totally outlandish. I'm telling you, that's how outlandish some of these ideas get going. Here's the other thing that stands out to me why I think it's historical fact. I, I think it's historical fact because the, rection, the resurrection accounts in the Gospels are too messy. And, and here's what I mean by that. Like if you invent this story and it's a fairy tale, 
you actually craft it to make sure you get it just right. You want to remove all the holes in the story. I mean, if we're going to invent a religion and a movement, you don't let obvious contradictions just sit there. And in the resurrection accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here's one of the things that stands out. And and here's the example I will give. It hasn't been cleaned up. The first witnesses to the resurrection in all four accounts were women. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but I need you to think about that from an ancient perspective. In, In first century Judaism in Israel, women were not considered the most reliable witnesses. They weren't even allowed to be a witness in court. And the fact that the Gospels left this in there and said, here's the deal, It was women. It was this woman and this group of women. I don't know. There was a bunch of women that were there. And they're all the very first ones to find the empty tomb and realize and see Jesus and realize that he came back from the dead. Listen, if you're inventing a make-believe religion, you don't take the people in society that no one's going to believe and make them the first witnesses. But if he really came back from the dead, you got no other choice. And listen, these are the ladies that found it. These are the ladies that saw the empty tomb. These are the ladies that saw him in the garden. These are the ladies right here. It doesn't matter if you trust them or not. They're the first ones on the scene. You would clean that up otherwise. And here's the other thing that stands out. And this will be my last point on why I think it's a, a historical fact. And it's this. Listen, people don't boldly die for a lie. You just, you just don't. Like, if the disciples made this up, it does not make sense to me. You got 11 guys in this little scheme, maybe 100, you don't know, and every single one of them are willing to be beaten to death, stoned to death, crucified upside down, burned alive. They're dying horrible, awful deaths. Are you going to hold on to a con for that long? No, listen, I'm telling you right now, it's great while you're making money, while you're making popularity, but the moment you start to get killed for it, imprisoned for it, beheaded for it, that moment you begin to say, this lie isn't worth it. We made it all up. You're telling me not one of them cracked? Not one? There's no way some cowardly fishermen that are uneducated from Galilee stick it all the way out to the end for a lie, unless, unless, they really met a resurrected Jesus. And that when you meet someone that came back from the dead, you literally can't beat it out of me. There's nothing you can do. Listen, I believe that everything in this points to the fact that the resurrection is a historical fact. And here's why this is a big deal for us. As we get ready for Easter, listen, the resurrection of Jesus is an essential part of the gospel and Christianity. And it is painted in the Bible as a historical fact, not a fairy tale, not a good moral story, not something they just wish was true. It's painted as historical fact. And if Jesus did not really come back from the dead, then every single one of us are part of a scam. I don't want to be a part of a scam. This is why this matters to me. I'm I'm digging in this, going over this, because what I want us to know is that Jesus really did come back from the dead, and our faith is in something real, not tradition, not make-believe, nothing else. He really is alive and back from the dead. It isn't any of those other things. And here's what that means for us. If Jesus did really come back from the dead, that has some implications for us. Number one, that means that God really is real. If Jesus died and came back from the dead three days later, there should be no doubt whether or not God is real because you don't do that any other way. 
The other thing is this, that God is really strong. If Jesus really died and came back from the dead, if God can bring a man back from the dead on the third day, then he's strong enough to deal with all of you, our issues that we've got. He's not just real, he's also strong. And here's the other thing, that if Jesus came back from the dead, then the gospel is the most powerful message in all the world. I mean, it, it's strong. That means it's strong enough to change you and me. You know that part of your heart that feels stubborn you can't get to? No counseling will fix, no medication will fix, no therapy will fix. The only thing that will fix it, I'm telling you, is someone that came back from the dead and is strong enough to fix my heart. Listen, that means he's strong enough not only to fix my heart, that means he's strong enough to bring me back from the dead when I die. Listen, death is coming for all of us. And the reality is if Jesus came back from the dead, if he, if he really did that, God is really real and he is really strong and the gospel is the most powerful message on all the earth and that should literally change our lives. Now, I wanna give one story for you. Um, I don't know if this will help or not, but there was a young man, he grew up in the church uh, that I was working with, not this church, another church. Um, and I, I worked with him for a while. He left and went away for college. And when he was sometime here in church or in his church, he prayed to trust Jesus, but he kind of walked away from it in college. And he came back a couple years after college and he was engaged to a girl. He wanted me to do the wedding. Um, and so I was like, oh man, this is awesome. I get to see this guy, I get to catch up, know what's kind of going on. I get to be part of this really special day. So we begin to have this conversation. And then, um, y'all might not like this story, but it's what happened. Um, so as we're talking, he's like, yeah. And then he begins to tell me how she's not a follower of Jesus at all. And so he wants her to meet me. He wants me to do the wedding so that I can give her the gospel and she can get saved. Um, and I'm like, hey, man, I, I don't mind sharing the gospel with your fiance, but you, you need to know something right now. Uh, I, I'm not going to marry you two. I, I can't do it. The Bible has some very, very clear statements about that, about uh, someone who believes in Jesus and someone who doesn't should not get married. It's, it's obvious. It's not even debatable. It's plain from what the Bible says. And i got to obey God. And listen, man, I, I, I can't do this. I'm telling you, don't do this. And he goes, so you're saying I won't marry you? I was like, no, I won't marry you. And so he had this idea, well, maybe, maybe when he meets her, he'll change his mind. So he didn't tell his fiance this. This is a really bad idea. So he scheduled a meeting with me anyways. And I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? He goes, I just want you to meet her, and we really want you to do the wedding. I was like, hey, you know I already told you I can't do that. Did something change? He goes, no, I just uh, I want us both to be there to ask you. And I was like, hey, man, I'm, I told him, I said, don't do this. <laughs> He goes, I want to. I was like, all right, you asked for it. So, um, so he scheduled a meeting, and him and his fiance show up. And uh, this is a, one life lesson. Don't try to manipulate people because it won't work. Don't manipulate your fiance. Don't try to manipulate your pastor. It may work for a little bit, but it will eventually blow up in your face. Um, and so this is awkward, you guys. I'm not going to lie to you. It was awkward. So we begin to have this conversation. Um, and I just tell her, I only marry people who are followers of Jesus to each other. I, I, I can't do this. And then... And then she responded by telling me, well, we've already talked about that, and we don't think it's an issue, so it shouldn't matter to you. And I was like, oh, thank you for that. Um, I'm, tr I'm trying to be nice here. I was like, it's not that it's an issue for me. It's that it's an issue for God, according to his Bible. I, I don't, I'm telling you, I don't, I don't have an option on this. I don't get to ignore what God said. That's not what followers of Jesus do. We don't ignore what the Bible said. Uh, and she goes, well, I, and then 
he hops in. No, we both agree this isn't a problem. And so uh, at this moment, I feel like it's my job as a pastor to really point out the truth to this young man. I was like, okay. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'm going to ignore you for a minute. I'm going to talk to your fiance. And I said, hey, man, let me tell you what you and her just said to me. You and her just told me that your faith in Jesus means so little. It has such a little impact on your life that you can be in the most intimate personal relationship that's supposed to last a lifetime. And she doesn't think it's going to make any difference at all in your relationship. That tells me, I don't think you believe in him. Uh, And he's like, what what do you mean? I was like, let me just go ahead and ask. And I ask him one question. And this is where it all, do you really believe that Jesus actually came back from the dead? He goes, I believe he died. I said, that's not what I asked you. Do you believe that he came back from the dead? And his answer was simple. I don't know. And I said, hey, you have a choice. You can either place your trust in Jesus and believe that he came back from the dead or not. But stop playing the game that you believe in him because you don't. She knows it, and I know it. Apparently, you're the only one that doesn't in this room. Um, Now, listen, I'm not saying all meetings with me go that way. (laughs) But but if, if Jesus really did come back from the dead, We don't get to play games with this stuff. If he came back from the dead, he's real and he's alive. And when he does a work in your heart, it is strong and powerful and he takes it all the way to the end. So if you're drowning in sin today, I want to give you hope. Jesus is alive and he can handle it. You're discouraged. You feel like you don't have hope. You don't know what to do? I'm telling you, Jesus is alive and he can answer all your problems. He's strong enough for that. You're wounded? Man, you've been hurt by people more than you can even say out loud. If Jesus is alive, he can help heal your wound. But let me tell you what doesn't work. Jesus is alive. Eh. No, that's, that's not Jesus is alive. That's Jesus is a fairy tale. Now, my question for you today is, do you believe that Jesus really came back from the dead or not? Because the essence of following Jesus is that question right there. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to guide you in a time of response. Listen, I'm going to tie it back to the very thing that we said at the very beginning. Are you being saved? Are you really walking with Jesus, encountering him, knowing him? Is he working in you? Listen, if he came back from the dead, that means he's strong enough to work in your heart. If you've been playing a game, I want to encourage you today to stop and to really run after him and him alone. Maybe for you, you're here today and you feel discouraged or you have a problem that's bigger than you can figure out how to deal with. You have a sin that's coming after you over and over and over again. Let me remind you that Jesus came back from the dead. Whatever your problem is, he can fix it. Whether that's the worst marriage you can ever possibly imagine or the worst addiction that you've ever heard of, whatever it is, or even a small thing, if he can bring a man back from the dead, 
He can help you with your problem. Would you just go to him and ask him to help right now there in your seat? Maybe for you the thing that happened is you, you just are reminded anew about the power of the gospel. And right there in your seat, would you just worship Jesus? Just take a moment to praise him for this amazing good news that he frees us from sin and he offers us forgiveness not by works but by his grace. Like if the thing that happened in you was awe or worship, just do that right there in your seat. And I can't let this moment pass because some of you may actually need to trust in Jesus for the first time. Because I want to remind you of the good news that Paul preached, the good news that we have heard and that we believe in. It's that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he came back to life three days later, just like the Bible promised hundreds and thousands of years before. And he offers you and me relationship and forgiveness is if you will trust him and ask him to save you. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. He does that work. The thing you bring to the table is your sin and your trust. So if you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do that today. In a moment, I'm going to close with some prayer. If you need to speak to one of the pastors, we'll be down front at the close of the service. If you just want Talk about anything, we would love to get a chance to help you and whatever thing God's doing in your heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, you, you see us and, and you, know, you know those of us who have weak faith and faith, God, we just need your help. And I, I'm praying that all of us would be a people here who would really believe that you came back from the dead. We'd believe that it's fact and history. And God, I pray that we would believe as a result of that, that you are strong and you are real and present and that your gospel is powerful enough to help us with everything. God, make us those people. I pray we'd be a people that would worship you and adore you and trust you and pursue you. But God, I pray we'd do it all by faith in the resurrection of Jesus and nothing less. God, I, I pray we would really believe in you. And I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right.